Hello everyone and welcome to episode 17 of the Make a Stack podcast which aims to demystify the world of saving and investing for young people. I am your host Will Waterhouse. So today I'm joined by Dan Robertson who works in the investment consultancy industry for institutional clients. He became captivated by investing as a young teenager and developed a particular interest in real estate investment trusts also known as REITs for short. We also discussed Dan's investment journey investment platforms such as AJ Bell and alternative assets, including whiskey from the 1960s. So without further ado, let's get into it. And we're live. Uh, Dan Robertson, welcome to the podcast. Uh, how's it going? Well, thank you very much for having me. Well, it's a, a pleasure to be on your podcast. Uh, first guest of the new year, I'm assuming that makes me. And yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, new year, new podcast opportunities. Um, so yeah, great to have you on. And I'm, I'm glad that we've managed to make this happen because um yeah we've been talking about doing it for a couple of months it seems but it's good to finally tie you down and uh you know get get your thoughts on on all things investing i just thought it'd be good if you could just do a brief intro into into um who you are what you're doing and your own kind of yeah investing journey so far that'd be awesome Thanks. Certainly, yes. Obviously, um, we work together um, in investment consulting. My my journey probably started. Um, I'm I'm 23 now, so it's quite a long time ago. Probably around 10 years ago now. So, oh, a very wow. long time back. Uh, probably around 2012, where um, I used to go on holiday with my grandparents to Scotland. And one day, that this old um, technology invention called Teletext. I don't know if you remember it. Um, I do. Yeah, for accessing sports scores. Um, if you've got any younger viewers, they've probably never heard of it. But um. <laughs> My granddad used to um, use this to, to to view stock prices on TV. So, as a twelve year old up in um, Scotland on holiday without an iPhone or anything, I just became quite interested in seeing these sorts of movements and um, that. And so I was just sort of asking him what that was about, and that was really what got me initially interested in investing. So he used to um, subscribe to Money Week magazine. So. Whenever I'd go up there over the summer, I'd take five or six copies of that back home and uh, just sort of try and read around it. Um, and really, I think it was just sort of the story about investments. I think it's quite a it's sort of almost a debate trying to figure out what makes a good equity and investment. Yeah. And that really got me interested. So probably around two years later, um, I persuaded my parents to open a junior ISA and um, allow me to manage the funds. So I started investing in a few mining companies back then, made some uh, calamitous mistakes, but also some good successes as well there. Um, and that's just been something which um, has sort of occupied me. Um, it, it was sort of my passion behind sort of studying economics and finance at uni and getting into this industry. So, yeah, I actively have managed my portfolio for probably about eight years now. Um, I've sort of changed and refined my strategy over that time period. Um, and it's just something, a hobby I really enjoy. And obviously happy to sort of share my wisdom with other people. Now that that's awesome, and I love, I love that little anecdote about um, about teletext. Um, I do remember looking looking at that back in the day when when TVs were a lot deeper than they are now. <laughs> um, do you so? Do you remember what stocks your your grandfather was investing in at the time? Because um, j- just from where I'm coming from, I've seen a lot of um, uh, portfolios of individuals who are of that generation. And, um, and it's quite interesting to see, you know, them being in, in stuff like utilities and, and other stuff like that. Can, can you remember what kind of stocks your, your grandfather was, was looking at? Because that would be quite insightful in terms of seeing how, how the landscapes changed for, for us millennials and Zoomers. Yeah, yeah. So I think there's probably a, a systemic issue with everyone sort of in that age group um, from the UK and that they all tended to own UK sort of centric, well, I think sort of referred to as dinosaur companies um, nowadays. So his biggest holding was Shell. Um, my granny was in Burberry and Unilever, which I figured out she must have been an incredibly good investment over the sort of 40, 50 years she owned those. Um, so yeah, it was, I think, entirely UK-based um, companies, often with big dividends. So there's obviously been a very big shift in terms of investing away from the UK towards more... Um, global um, investments, which obviously obviously the FTSE 100 is quite a global index, but I think 
in terms of being able to access the new industries uh, today, like tech, that obviously wasn't something which featured in their portfolios, but um, probably served them well in the 80s and 90s when there was that sort of um, transfer from state to uh, private ownership or public ownership, sorry. Yeah. And I imagine he would have been holding physical share certificates where the dividends will have been paid like, in letter form in the post. Yeah, yeah. So they, they, they came in checks. Um, obviously, every quarter, and we've just, um, uh, my mum's uncle's actually a similar story where we've um, taken over sort of managing his, his finances. And um, yeah, I've got the same issue with uh, lots of Lloyd's Banking Group share certificates worth about 80p each now, or probably a bit lower um, today. Um, and yeah, receiving those checks in the post. So just to sort of um, illustrate how wrong you can often be with investing, when I started on this journey in 2012, initially I was looking at buying paper share certificates because that's what my granddad did and I didn't really realise uh, until uh, about sort of online trading until I obviously researched that a bit more before I opened my junior ISA. But yeah, obviously very different there. And I suppose it probably encourages a more longer-term investment approach when you have these paper share certificates where you have to you know, spend a week or two trying to sell them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I actually have forgotten his name, but um, I think he's a professional investor who has done a lot of work for, I want to say Aberdeen. I probably got that wrong. Um, but essentially, his philosophy is that you should try and minimize. Uh, no, what his philosophy is, is that you should try and have friction in terms of being able to buy and sell shares and that actually having, having barriers in place, i.e., you know, posting your share certificates off or whatever can actually be beneficial in, in improving, improving your returns because you're not, you're not going to be so, uh, it's not going to be as easy for you to just exit a position. Um, yeah, so that's, no, that's, that's quite insightful. And so in terms of your uh, own sort of individual investing journey, I know you mentioned that you um, persuaded your parents to get a junior ISA open for you. Do you, do you remember like what, what the first stocks you, you were buying were uh, in, that, in that wrapper and, and how that evolved over time? Yeah, so I certainly do. Um, quite sadly, it was, um, it, was, it was a gold mining company called Amara Mining. Uh, this will make me sound incredibly naive, but I purchased that based on um, a, a newspaper tip, and I did a bit of due diligence um, through reading the Investors Chronicle, which I soon subscribed to after. Um, so that didn't do particularly well. Um, I remember I was at my uh, dad's company doing work experience, and uh, the Ebola crisis was raging through Sierra Leone, and that uh, the, this gold mining company, Mara Mining, were predominantly focused there. So. I think the shares dropped something like 20% one day um, a few months into my ownership when I was in my, in my dad's office on work experience. And that sort of made that day quite unproductive for me because that was sort of my first um, true test as an investor. But um, yeah, so that was, my, that, that was my first one, definitely. Um, I think I sold it maybe as 20% loss in the end. I think it sort of went down a bit more and then came a bit up as the gold price improved. So... Yeah, I started off on those sort of mining companies, which definitely wasn't uh, a, a good idea at all. Obviously, nowadays I, I wish I'd put in Bitcoin or, or, or Tesla. Um, obviously, yeah, hindsight's a, a, a difficult thing. So, yeah, yeah, my investment journey definitely changed um, over those years. I think um, my after I owned the, the mining companies, I switched to retail. Um, so I had a terrific success story with um, a company, Superdry, which was um, listed under the ticker Supergroup. And that was, a, that was one of the FTSE 350 best performers um, over the year. And probably half I owned, I think it went up about 90%, um, which I sort of saw as a, a more value play. So I think for, for people interested in active investment, it's definitely worth looking at companies where you're more associated with the product. Mm. Um, so something like Superdry or any of the retailers, I think it's easier for, to, to sort of comprehend when you're reviewing them. Uh, certainly the mining companies are obviously highly correlated to the metal prices which is very difficult to sort of predict and um, in general just some of the, the the very big companies in the UK um, I don't know if you think for example maybe something like AstraZeneca mm. it's incredibly difficult to analyze something like that so I tended to for, for those years after I tended to invest in simpler companies like Superdry, um, Booker which was a convenience um, store retailer which got taken over and yeah, I ended up doing that for quite a few years, then got into REITs, which I think we might talk about maybe later. Uh, and, and my shift um, in recent years has definitely been more towards passive, just um, 
with extra commitments like work and uh, CFA exams, I've uh, <laughs> probably had less less time to be able to focus on that. But maybe in a few years, I'll, I'll maybe try and ramp up my exposure a bit more. Yeah, uh, that's great. Um, yeah, I was reading a while ago um, one up on Wall Street by by Peter Lynch, and um, it was quite interesting hearing about um, what he was saying in terms of the fact that doctors were more likely to buy oil companies and then people that worked in the oil and gas industry were more likely to buy big pharma. Um, and it's just quite, quite an interesting behavioral anomaly in the sense that people tend to stray away from their natural uh, kind of area of competence. Um, and yeah, it's something that I'm quite cognizant of because uh, yeah, I, I don't want to get myself into a position where I I have too much conviction for a holding that maybe I don't know enough about. So, it, you know, it's really important to have certain checklists that you kind of implement and, and work through before you go into a certain stock. Um, so, yeah, I, I completely, completely agree with what you were saying there. Yeah, definitely. I, th- I think it's maybe there's almost maybe a grass is greener mentality in terms of maybe those oil uh, people you alluded to maybe trying to switch to something where they deem as more sort of VSG appropriate. But um, yeah, I think definitely if, if, if you've got any sort of um, listeners of this podcast, if you're very new to investing, I think it's just helpful just try and try and initially, even if you're not purchasing the share, just maybe try and just follow a company which you know about, like mm-hmm. Superdry, for example, for six months. And I think that's probably a more helpful tactic. Yeah. I mean, whilst we're talking about fashion, uh, I may as well bring up ASOS, and that's been pretty painful for me, actually. Uh, I, went, I went into ASOS in April 2019, and I'm currently down around 30%, um, even though the fundamentals are, are still fairly good. Um, there's a couple of people I follow on Instagram, and, and they've done due diligence using you know, discounted cash flow models and things, and it looks fairly attractive now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but having said having said all of that, um, it's been it's been fairly crap seeing seeing it go further and further into the red. I think at one point I was down seventy percent during the depths of COVID uh, during kind of Q two twenty twenty. But I, I think I'm going to hold. <laughs> and what was the what's the reasoning behind that? Because presumably they've done extremely well with the, the sort of shift to online. Yeah, I, th- I think um, they've done pretty well in terms of uh, increasing revenues. Uh, it's just the, the bottom line hasn't been great. And um, there's also been talk of, you know, increased competition as well in that space. I think Boohoo are kind of um, quite active uh, in, in terms of like potentially taking market share and stuff. But um, yeah, I think for the time being, I'm, I'm just going to hold and and in terms of the overall weighting it has in my portfolio, it's, it's fairly small. So I'm, I'm kind of comfortable, comfortable in that. Um, in terms of my own philosophy, I'm, I'm tempted to have around three quarters passive. Uh, so index funds and ETFs with um, 10, 15% actively managed funds uh, and then the, the balance in, in stocks. Um, I think in the grand scheme of things, I'm still fairly inexperienced. You know, I've only been in the game for, you know, four years. Uh, so I think it would be good to kind of slowly build my confidence in picking individual shares. And, and as I get more, more of a structured methodology, uh, I can kind of maybe increase that. Um, but it kind of goes back to what I was talking about in terms of overconfidence in that, you know, most on average, you're going to underperform the market. So, you know, uh, I've got, I need to kind of yeah know yeah. myself there and not get too carried away. Definitely, no. I, I think that definitely sounds sensible. Sort of um, the dominant sort of um, holding being impassive, which is sort of something I'm uh, keeping to. And like, I always think it's funny, even if you look, even if we knew about COVID and everything that's happened in the past two years, two years ago, you'd have probably said buy Chinese equities because China, China's probably. Done, done the best sorts of probably hours of COVID in terms of managing it and obviously that would have been a horrific decision so yeah these are definitely difficult things and um yeah I mean looking at China they they smashed it in 2020 and then sort of summer 2021 that all, all the all the kind of government crackdown and antitrust came about on on sort of big Chinese corporates like Alibaba um and yeah that that certainly led to a, a fairly hefty drawdown um, I've got 
I'm invested currently in the Bailey Gifford China and JP Morgan China growth and income. Um, yeah, and both of them have seen a fairly sizable drawdown uh, over the latter half of 2021. Um, but just going back to value, I think a lot of people are talking about Alibaba being like one of the biggest uh, mega cap plays that you can make at the moment. Um, I'm not going to go into that just yet because I haven't really done any due diligence at all. But um, I'm, I'm fairly confident in in uh, China recovering. And I guess the worst thing you can do is to sell it at, at sort of artificially low prices with, with, with investing. Definitely. And I think... Um... In India, possibly also offers um, quite good opportunities. They've got quite good demographics in terms of their age, and I, I think they are becoming a slightly less sort of protectionist, which um, would obviously be good for their domestic stock markets. Yeah, and so um, just just uh, touching upon the the passive side. So you mentioned that going forward, you're looking to have more of a more of a passive approach. Um, is that just going to be a globe, like properly global focus, or are you sort of still being active in terms of choosing the, the geographies and things? Yeah, so um, my, my dominant holding probably uh, 40, 50% of my portfolio by value is just an MSCI world tracker. Um, I have sort of uh, been tempted to go and, and maybe increase my exposure to the US through the S&P, obviously that, that, that's done tremendously over the past few years. But I think... Um, in general, I, I think I'm probably going to try and stick to that and not try and uh, predict which geographies or sectors are going to try and perform well. Um, I, I know we were talking just before Christmas about how, how poor the emerging markets have, have done in the past sort of one or two years. Um, I read an interesting article over Christmas and uh, before our time in the 90s, emerging markets has a tremendous run. I think um, they went up something like a thousand percent in the 90s. So I, I think it is quite difficult to try and sit here and say, oh, the US is going to continue to uh, outperform Europe as it has done, even, even though it has done for the last 10 years. So I think in general, yeah, um, it's, it's probably my focus is to shift to um, just a MSCI world index. And then I might try and add a small, maybe 5%, 10% allocation um, relative to the equity holds in, in emerging markets. Uh, given that's sort of not included in the MSCI World Index. But uh, yeah, I, I think it is just incredibly difficult to try and uh, predict regions. I know uh, the, the sort of passive companies try and sell you different funds like a Europex, UK index funds. And I just think that's incredibly difficult to try and predict where that's going to go. So yeah. Yeah, just on that, it's, it's weird how there's so many different passive options because you know the, the, the narrative at the moment is um, buy the S&P or go global. So I don't really understand why you can buy some MSCI South Africa ETF. You know, it doesn't really make that much sense. So I'm um, like, do you, do you have any ideas as to why that's happening? Or, or do you think it's just uh, sort of companies like Vanguard, um, et cetera, just wanting to generate, you know, more revenue through a supposed more, you know, more diversified fund selection list? Um. I mean, the, the geography ones is less of a concern for me. I think the, the product which really annoys me is those sorts of thematic ETFs, like the um, battery-focused ones or uh, there's like robotics and AI-focused ones. And these products, I, I, I think they just sound incredibly good to investors. You know, um, if, if you say to anyone, oh, batteries, that they, they think it's going to be a huge growth industry over the next or 10 years, obviously yeah. with electric cars. But is sort of the first rule of investing like historic news is already priced in so yeah yeah those are the ones i've got a, a, a real problem with I, I, I suppose maybe if you're south african for example going on to your example maybe if you've got a view on the sort of political outlook there um maybe that's what those products are designed for and um i know, I know there is obviously a historic rule that you are you should be overweight on the in the economy you live in. I think that's probably less relevant now, but maybe that's what those types of products are a source of for. But in general, yeah, the thematic uh, ETF product group, I'm not a fan of. I have to say. Yeah, no, I, I certainly second that. I think I think thematic ETFs are are quite risky because you know if if you buy a I don't know like a robotics one or like a clean water one, the the biggest companies in there. They, they, they might do terribly, you know, it's, it's like, it's like you invested in tech in the nineties. Yes, you could have, you could have picked Microsoft, but loads of the other companies went bust. So, you know, it's, yes, yeah, 
just because you're investing in a, in a growth industry doesn't necessarily mean that's going to translate to good returns for shareholders. Um, yeah. So yeah, I completely, I completely agree there. And also, yeah, just going on to what you were saying about, um, about your, your passive strategy, that's actually quite similar to mine. So I'm, I'm putting money every month into an MSCI world ETF at the moment. Um, and I, I reckon, I reckon that'll probably ultimately be around half the portfolio. And then after I've achieved that weighting, I'm probably going to put yeah around 10% into an emerging market uh, ETF. So I think yeah, I think that's a fairly a fairly sensible option from from a weightings perspective. Sure. Uh, and so am I right in saying you don't have any exposure to credits in your across your portfolios? No, I'm I'm uh, full equities, full full crypto. Um, in all honesty, I, I'm not. I'm not massively sold on credit, especially as a young investor. Um, I mean, y- unless you're looking to to buy a house, you're you're probably going to have a fairly long uh, investment time horizon. And so, I'm I feel comfortable in running um, a decent level of risk in the portfolio for, from from um, you know with full equities and, and a bit of crypto. Um, also, with regards to credit. Um, spreads as well are fairly low fairly tight at the moment so that's not going to be that good from a sort of forward looking forward looking perspective um but i'd be i'd be really interested to hear your your thoughts on credit are you, do you have any exposure at the moment yeah so i think for me it's um i think also one of the, the difficulties in investor is knowing when you're going to need to access these funds um I, I don't really have much of an idea i'd say maybe three four years i've maybe got a rough plan of maybe getting on the property ladder then so um, yeah, I've got small allocations credit um, through sort of similar funds to the Vanguard Life Strategy mine around through um, HSBC. Uh, but I've, uh, I, I, yeah, obviously I've been saving sort of since 2012. So I, I've built myself up a, a sort of relatively sized portfolio and just, um, I think just chucking any, everything at the MSCI World Index was sort of a bit, a bit terrifying for me. So yeah, I've probably got about um, a 20, 30% holding in a sort of 60, 40 uh, traditional uh, equity credit portfolio yeah nice and there's, there isn't really any rationale in terms of where i think rates are going or anything but i just think it's um yeah w- w- when yeah. you begin to earn quite a lot of one product it, it does become a bit terrifying so yeah that was my rationale yeah i mean i, <clears throat> I did a recent post on on the channel um about my lifetime ice allocation i'm not sure if you've seen that but um like it is something that I need to think about in terms of how the allocation is going to change in the lead up to buying a house and, you know, products like Vanguard life strategies and uh, BlackRock consensus, which, which can be, you can basically scale up or down the equity exposure and then the balance goes in credit and perhaps a tiny bit in property. Um, you know, that's something I need to consider. So things like 80, 20 or 60, 40 will pr- probably, become more more of a credible option but for right now i just don't have enough certainty as to when i'm going to buy a house and it's probably going to be for ages not going to be for ages um because <laughs> i'm paying rent at the moment so um yeah it's just just one to think about really yeah definitely and um i'm hugely uh, bullish on on the outlook for equity so i'm sure uh, that that obviously sounds like a, a, a reasonable strategy and obviously it's sort of at the, the beginning of your career so <laughs> yeah i think that is probably quite sensible to, to, to do that yeah and so um just off your comments you said you yeah you were bullish on on the equity markets going forward is there any kind of key drivers of that in your opinion what what do you think is going to cause the equity market to have a good run sort of over the next five years or so yeah i think sorry that's probably um probably didn't work that's 100 percent correctly i think i'm incredibly bullish about equities over the, the long run and by the long oh, run yeah. 20 <laughs> 30 years yeah. See, yeah i haven't yeah, yeah. really got much of an opinion on where the s p is um today i have very little idea of where it's going to be next year um I just sort of take my inspiration from you know the investors we like, like uh, Terry Smith, Warren Buffett, and yeah. I, I just think technologically we are um, just at the advent of a, a fantastic potential. You see, like autonomous driving, AI, battery, space. There's there's so many industries which I think are just going to revolutionise the world. And I think if you look over the past twenty years, we've had like the smartphone and other companies like Facebook, which I would argue are possibly 
nowhere near as revolutionary as the next generation of companies in like biotech or those other um, sort of regions I alluded mm -hmm. to. So just in general, I just think the equity markets are going to do um, tremendously as we, we really see um, huge industrial advancements. So yeah, that's just my yeah. premise. But I, I have very little idea on where the S&P is today um, or if it's yeah. overvalued. And also just from, from my perspective, um, everyone keeps banging on about inflation and, and high inflation expectations. So I just think, well, if inflation is going to be higher, I may as well just put it into equities because it's, it's sort of higher, higher expected returns. So you're more likely to, um, you know, maintain real wealth from, from like a real perspective. Um, so yeah, I, I completely, completely agree there. Um, and do you have any other view on where rates are going to go? Because I mean, my personal opinion is they're not going to go very high at all. I have, I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not even going to try and call that because um, I just think it's, it's just a complete waste of time, in my opinion. Even if you get, even, even if you call it right, who's to say that your portfolio is well positioned to benefit from it? I mean, it's, it's, there's so many factors um, that that go into it. Um, yeah. And so, um, REITs, I, I was wanting to get your thoughts on REITs and I think this is kind of going to be the main, main part of the podcast, hopefully. Um, you know, I don't know a great deal about REITs and, and I'm not currently invested in them. Um, would you be able to talk about how you got into REITs and what the decisions were to, to actually, yeah, put your money in them? Yeah, certainly. So um, we obviously talk about REITs quite a lot in the the office. It's sort of what I'm uh, known for being interested in. So um, just as sort of a brief overview for anyone who's not familiar, REITs uh, stand for Real Estate Investment Trusts. Um, and they sort of effectively trade as equities on the, uh, the, the London Stock Exchange and the Stock Exchange over the world, um, but where they have to own an amount of property. So I think the minimum amount is 75% of the funds have to be invested in property. Um, and these are sort of specialist products which enjoy um, tax efficiency. So as long as they uh, pay out 90% of their income in dividends per year, they don't have to pay any corporation tax. So it's quite a compelling asset class, I think, to get exposure to property. Um, obviously, we, we sort of alluded to earlier, the property prices, uh, particularly for residential, are pretty absurd in the UK. So it's very difficult to get exposure there. Um, so around six years ago, I read a very compelling article in, in the Investors Chronicle um, about a company called Tritex Big Box REIT, which I've definitely talked to you about before. And um, Tritex is a REIT which specializes in logistics properties. So if you ever drive in near a, a, a big port or an airport, you'll see massive Amazon or Tesco's warehouses. And Tritex is a, a four billion pound um, trust which owns those types of properties. And um, my investment philosophy really back then, sort of five, six years ago for getting in was that uh, there was a systemic issue with the, the supply of these big boxes being uh, quite constrained given difficulties, sort of given planning permission. And there was really a lack of um, future warehouses being um, sort of getting planning permission for being built. And then on the demand side, obviously we're, we're very much aware of the increase in online shopping and retailing. It's obviously the, the the future of retail. So, really, just as a, 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 a very much an economic sort of argument, I looked at this demand supply imbalance. Uh, I, I saw this company Tritex, which was trading on quite a, a a very small premium to its uh, net asset value, which is the uh, predominant way for valuing REITs. And so, I initially got in one day before my eighteenth birthday. Uh, because I remember getting an email on my 18th birthday with the with the sort of contract notes, and I got an, um, 124p, and now it's uh, 260p, and I've got something like a five percent dividend yield every year since that sort of wow. 18th birthday. So it's been a, a, a terrific hold, and it's up a uh, sort of 50 percent this year. And um, so yeah, REITs as an asset class is just something I I quite enjoy because they tend to come with quite hefty dividend yields of sort of four or five percent along with that capital appreciation uh if you sort of pick the the, the sort of correct area where i think in general that, that this is an asset class which endures quite low correlation to equity markets so i think tritex is around 0.3 percent correlated to the msci world so it, it's a good product in my opinion for diversifying equity exposure and sort of getting almost like credit like instrument but with higher returns 
So, yeah, that's sort of a rough uh, synopsis of Reeds. Yeah, that was, re- that was really clear, that. And so I guess from a young investor's perspective, um, capital appreciation is arguably more important than dividend income. Um, you know, you, you, ideally you'd want profits from the company to be sort of reinvested rather than paid out to investors. Um, do, do you think uh, REIT should have a place in, in a young person's portfolio or do you think they become more of a useful tool as you approach retirement and you're looking to take the natural yield from your investments? Yeah, so I, I think that is a, a good point and it probably depends on the individual's investors' situation. So I think for somebody with a small portfolio, there probably isn't much point bothering with REITs. So um, if I was managing that portfolio, I'd probably just shove it in an S&P or MSCI World Tracker. But I think when you get beyond a set point, um, as I sort of mentioned earlier, I think uh, if you start plowing so much into the MSCI um, world, you can sort of get quite high equity exposure there and REITs I think there's a there's, there's a variety of situations where they could perform well obviously Tritax has done brilliantly over the past you now performed the S&P and pretty much any other equity index but um so these contracts which uh Tritax own with its clients which include like Amazon and Tesco's uh they're inflation linked upwards only so it's it's quite a good hedge there against inflation and just in general if equity markets were uh, to have like a low period of returns, getting a four or five percent yield in addition to those inflation linked um, rent upwards only uh, contracts, I think is quite a compelling option if uh, markets were to perform, were to sort of go sideways over the next few years. Yeah. So I think um, it, it definitely does help diversify, and obviously that they've got quite a low correlation to the market. So I think they are quite a compelling asset class, and as um. I think really REITs are among a whole broader spectrum of alternatives. Obviously, you mentioned crypto. There's various other types like forestry companies, um, other alternatives. So, yeah, I think definitely some exposure for uh, investors with a medium to large size portfolio is definitely uh, beneficial. Yeah. And so in terms of due diligence, I mean, that's that's very important when choosing REITs because arguably you could get a fairly you know, for example, UK centric real estate investment trust, which has a, a bias to a certain, you know, sector, for example, industrial as opposed to like residential or commercial, say. Um, what What is kind of your process in terms of, or what was your process in terms of deciding that Tritax Big Box was was the right option or, and, and other REITs that you've gone into before? Do you have a, a kind of, I know you mentioned sort of macroeconomic themes. Is, is there any other, um, any other sort of, tick boxes that you go through to decide whether or not it's a good investment yeah so when i um got into tritex that was really um i'm, I'm a subscriber to the investors chronicle so that was really just through reason all the share tips for several months and deciding that that uh, tritex was better than the other ones so yeah it is obviously quite um a, a difficult thing to comprehend back then it was really i, I could just sort of see that you know, even sort of five, six years ago, Amazon was still quite a small player in the online sphere. And I just sort of saw that as the future. Um, I think in general, it's quite a, a, a difficult to try and ascertain which area is going to grow. Um, I'd rather, to, to use sort of Warren Buffett's analogy, I'd rather sort of, uh, I can't remember what he said about baseball, but it was something like he'd like to have like 100 balls thrown at him and he can choose to hit whichever one he wants. So... Um, my personal process at the moment is I've subscribed to a company called Primary Bids, which um, provide me with uh, links to rights issues uh, for REITs. And then that sort of gives me a week or two to look at the REITs and ascertain if it's good because, yeah, you obviously want to try and choose the right area. So logistics has obviously been huge over the past few years. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't say there's a huge amount of due diligence I undertaken sort of uh, analysing the macro themes or whatever. But uh, yeah, in, in general with REITs, I think that the one thing to be said is you get significantly lower business risk. Like it, it's very difficult to manage a portfolio of properties and come up with a profit warning, for example. So yeah, I think you probably can be a bit more relaxed uh, than investing in something like Tesla or Ocado, for example. Yeah, definitely. So you met, so a couple of things. So um, you mentioned primary bids and then you also mentioned rights issues. Um, it would be really 
great if you could just provide a brief overview of what those are just for the listeners yeah so primary bids is a um a, a small fintech startup headquarters in london um they operate on an app only uh sort of policy through uh the ios and google play store um and if you download their app uh they sort of send you an email or notification whenever a company wants to engage in a rights issues so that is uh, when a company wants to raise fresh capital so in order to raise that capital, for example, if Tritex wanted to raise another 400 million to buy more warehouses, it would conduct a rights issue and offer um, additional shares at a discount to the um, previous price they were trading the day before and offer that through a sort of open book process. So um, what I would do is I'd be able to subscribe for X number of shares at say a three, four percent discount, and then primary bid would facilitate that being um, delivered from the um, originations, my um, AJ Bell dealing account. So yeah, it's, it's quite interesting, particularly during COVID, there was obviously lots of companies um, needing cash. So I managed to get into quite a few interesting opportunities such as Ocado and uh, a, a few other reads, but I definitely um, recommend any listeners, uh, certainly definitely just download the app and even just look at sort of the emails coming through because sometimes you do get some, some really interesting companies. Uh, available there as discount. Nice. Yeah, that sounds good. I'll definitely um, check that out and, and leave leave the link in the in the show notes. Um, so you mentioned uh, you mentioned that you had an account with AJ Bell. Um, just uh, just sort of taking a step back, I feel like a a roadblock that individual investors have is actually deciding which platform to go with and. There's so many advertisements about different platforms and I feel like people can just have sort of information overload and actually not make any decisions. Um, but it'd be, it'd be great if you could sort of talk about, um, first of all, AJ Bell and, and the platform and sort of how you came to decide that that was the best uh, platform for you, because I do think it's quite an important uh, thing to get right. Yeah, definitely. Obviously, I, I know you um, utilize their rival, uh, Hargreaves Lansdowne. But um, yeah, I, I think platforms, it really depends on your um, sort of investment persona, which one you use. So uh, Hargreaves and AJ Bell are, are very much um, suited to the active type of investor. They offer um, way too many options uh, for investments, huge, huge numbers of funds and stuff. So I think... Um, when I sort of opened my account with them, uh, my junior eyes was sort of the age sort of 16 or so, it was really the choice which um, got me interested in them. And I, I consider them very good. They're sort of, um, I think they're slightly cheaper in terms of the annual management charge to HL. Um, but in, in, in general, I, I obviously both options um, are, are really good and uh, they've got, you know, vast numbers of customers. I, I think beyond that, if uh, if you don't want to pursue an active strategy and maybe just want to get into the markets, there's there's fantastic platforms out there like um, Nutmeg and Wealthify, which mm. don't offer you the same choice um, and only offer sort of five six funds. Um, so yeah, I, I think really you've just got to ascertain if you want to have uh, uh, sort of much control over your investments. In which case, Hargreaves or AJ Bell would be definitely worth considering. Or if you want sort of a more stress-free life, in which case uh, I, I definitely look at one of the fintechs or startups there. Um, so yeah, in, in general, I'm not a fan of the um, the sort of free trading apps, sort of the day trading apps. Um, I, I won't name any names, obviously. Um, but I think those types of products, I just um, I think for longer time investors, you'll probably want to go with probably one of the bigger providers. So yeah, I don't know if you've got sort of any thoughts on those sort of smaller. I think I, I largely agree with you. I think AJ Bell and Hargreaves Lansdowne are good for people that want to be active, but at the same time, buy and hold. Um, Hargreaves Lansdowne in particular have a fairly, like a very wide variety of, of unit trusts on the platform. And because they're one of the largest UK platforms, they've, they've managed to negotiate fairly good ongoing charges with the respective fund managers. Um, so I think that's a good point for, for HL. I'm, I imagine AJ Bell into that into that same boat as well um the key downside to hl is um is trading equities frequently i think i think that can really eat into returns you know it's 11.95 a trade 
I'm not sure AJ Bell is, but I, I imagine it's it's yeah, nine ninety five, and then um, FX charges are quite high if you did want to consider international equities, which uh, is... it, exactly. And and I know full well that there's other trading platforms like Trading Two One Two, where you can sort of get exposure to um, US equities uh, by direct US equities, and it's it's I think it's almost free. There's there's probably spread spreads to to contend with. Um, so yeah, uh, but no, I think, I think generally speaking, um, if you're willing to buy and hold, um, these platforms like Hargreaves, Lansdowne and AJ Bell are, are good, but it's, I think it's really important for, for, for the listeners that you just really get an in-depth understanding as, as to how the charges are calculated, because you will find a way of, of, of making your portfolio more efficient from a fees perspective, which, which will ultimately result in better returns over the long run. Um, yeah. I think one other point to add is probably the main thing for for sort of listeners who are probably I'm imagining younger uh, sort of investors is probably tax as well is probably a key point. So you know some sort of something like the lifetime ISA where it's not tax but sort of a benefit there of the the sort of government bonus that's um, obviously hugely more important than the underlying investments you end up picking. And um, uh, there's quite a few there's, there's quite a limited number of brokers which offer licenses um, as part of their offering. So. Have you yeah, got a lifetime ISA? Yes, I do. Yeah, but I think um, I, I don't think those smaller um, sort of day trading uh, platforms offer lifetime ISAs. I might be wrong on that though, but my understanding was mainly HL and AJ Bell which offered them. Something that I was I was thinking about yeah, with regards to lifetime ISAs uh, specifically is the four hundred fifty thousand pound cap on the value of the house that you can ultimately buy with it. Uh, I know. I know. I've seen other other people in the personal finance space decide not to get a lifetime ice because of that, and it's something that's definitely made me scratch my head a little bit about because because I've got one and, and I do pay money in every month, although I pay more money into just a regular ISA. Are, what What are your thoughts on on the whole four hundred fifty thousand pound cap? Because obviously, with inflation going up, four hundred fifty thousand pounds is going to buy you fewer and fewer bricks. So. Um, yeah, let, let me know your thoughts on that. That'll be, that'll be useful for the, for the listeners, I think. Yeah, it's, it's definitely um, something to be aware of. I think when I, I, I got my, um, I remember watching the budget at uni where the, the, the license got announced and um, I sort of read all the background behind it and I, I just decided to, to, to go sort of in head first and I've sort of been contributing the sort of max amount ever since it opened. Um, I, I think the 450 limit is quite, sort of hindrance and i wish they did sort of increase in line with um house price growth each year um so i think definitely maybe if you've if you've not got a lifetime ISA now it may be as hard to justify if you're thinking about living in london obviously given you're starting from nothing and you've got less years of government contributions um i, th- I think personally for my situation i've obviously been sort of contributing the max and have just decided to commit to it and it, when I do get to the situation of buying a house, obviously uh, you would better that 450k limit in mind. Um, but luckily, mm. you know, house, houses outside London tend to be a fair bit lower than that at the moment. So I, I, I think there probably would be a workaround uh, there. But it's definitely something if you've not been subscribing to this product uh, to be aware of. Yeah, yeah, I, I have a similar opinion. I think if you're fairly confident that you're going to be buying a house outside of London, that makes the lifetime ISA um much a much more attractive product but if if you if you are fairly confident that you will buy a house in london I, yeah think think carefully um yeah so but then the earlier you start the more the more contributions you can get so i've had my sort of five six years now which is obviously a, a decent amount now so it is something i think you've just got to decide to go with or not but it's like that with any government policy like student loans they can all just uh sort of change the rules fairly <laughs> quickly so yeah yeah and so um in terms of in terms of your investing plans uh going forward have you got have you got your eye on anything in particular or is, are you going to keep everything fairly fairly passive yeah well as you know i started sort of cfa level two i'm due to sit in august uh for, for anyone who doesn't know that sort of fairly big finance exam so those commitments and work have just sort of um really reduced the amount of time i spend looking at markets when i was sort of 17, 18, I used to probably spend two, three hours a day reading 
around stuff, uh, which unfortunately I can't uh, sort of do nowadays. So that has sort of provided a hindrance to me being able to conduct sort of huge amounts of due diligence and um, observe everything. Um, so yeah, I wouldn't say there's anything hugely which is um, uh, sort of inspiring me at the moment. So I think emerging equities is something I'm underweight on and definitely something I'm going to try and look into over the next few months. And also private equity as a asset class seems to be quite interesting, uh, just given the sort of decline in um, public listings and this sort of shift towards um, companies staying private for longer, which obviously Scottish Mortgage has um, been involved in through their sort of um, private holdings. But uh, yeah, I think those are probably the two broad themes, um, alongside probably increasing my REIT exposure. So I'm probably trying to look to, to sort of downside risk. I don't know if there was anything sort of specific you're looking at at the moment or... No, not really. But um, it's interesting that you mentioned uh, private equity as an area of interest because um, I, I've actually got um, an investment in um, Harbourvest Global Private Equity. Uh, the ticker is HVPE. And uh, over Q4, that was actually the best performing um, f- um, security in my portfolio. It's done like really well. It got hammered um, with when COVID hit, as most most other stuff did. But um, but you know, it did really well over Q4, and it's basically just yeah, secondary listed private equity vehicle that has exposure to quite a lot of of underlying stuff. Um, so and what sort of the fees with with that product? Sorry. Oh, great question. Uh, I might just need to bring this up now. Um, it's it's fairly high. For, uh, from memory um i'm not sure if there are performance fees associated with it let me just double check yeah so ongoing charge uh 0.41 uh, on hl that is um there are performance fees uh which haven't obviously been disclosed so i, I think i need to do some more due diligence there to understand the the ramifications um but it's, it, it had a good, it's done well so far. I think, I think I'm up around 55% since I invested in, I think it was early 2020, like just before COVID hit. So it's done, done pretty well. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, I think with all those types of products, and part of this was actually one which I had sort of heard about before and looked, they, they look um, quite interesting. But obviously, yeah, the, the, the fees can be particularly high in those sorts of asset classes. <laughs> Um, actually, one other thing which I forgot to mention was that I did in December uh, buy some Ethereum. Oh, did so you? That was one other. Uh, that was one other uh, asset class which I'm just sort of sl- dipping my toe very slightly in. It's currently half a percent of my portfolio, and I don't want to really increase it much more than that. But uh, I-, I think Ethereum is quite interesting um, compared to Bitcoin. So, yeah, that's a new position I've initiated. Yeah, agreed. I, so for me, I'm. Uh... Crypto is about one and a half percent of my portfolio, and then within that one and a half percent, it's about eighty percent is Ethereum, twenty percent is Bitcoin. Um, I'm no crypto expert, but I just felt like Ethereum had more applications in terms of running, um, yeah, decentralized applications or DApps for short. Um, so, uh, yeah, it'd be interesting to see how how that plays out. But um, yeah, I, I don't think I'm going to be adding any more money into crypto anytime soon, unless unless that waiting drastically reduces um but yeah over the over the last 12 months or so i'm up around 20 percent um which is which has been good to see but yeah uh, it'd be interesting to see how 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 it fares in in 2022 (laughs) definitely and do you own any other um alternative like vehicles like gold uh, precious metals or um i mean i've got small holes in whiskey for example do you own anything sort of different like that I, I don't hold any any commodities or or um, watches or whiskey or anything anything like that. Although I do get a lot of uh, adverts on Instagram for for whiskey and another sort of um, alcoholic things. Um, how did you go about deciding to go into into whiskey? I mean, surely that's a bit of a, a bit murky. <laughs> Oh, you don't? I, I didn't decide. Um, I'm half Scottish and uh, for my 21st birthday, my, my granddad gave me a 1960s bottle of Glenfiddich single malt, which you, I don't even know if you can drink it nowadays. It's, uh, yeah, it's obviously so old, but uh, I, uh, it, that's quite a valuable um, product. So that's just something I sort of keep uh, in storage. 
uh, it, to keep it, it dry it, and away from sunlight. And uh, yeah, it's, it's quite interesting just sort of research those sorts of areas. But uh, I'm definitely no whiskey expert. Is there a way to get a sort of market valuation for whiskey? Are, the, are, there, are there websites where you can type in the, the vintage and the, and the type of whiskey and then it gives you a, a ballpark figure? Yeah, it's quite, um, obviously these sorts of things suffer from liquidity. It's quite opaque. So um, you can message sort of, um, I'd imagine they're called brokers um, and sort of you can, there was a couple which I sort of sent pictures to and sort of asked roughly what the value was. So that's um, obviously, they, they obviously give you a price, which is a discount of what they'll resell it for. Mm. Um, but obviously there's, there's a huge multitude of those types of things nowadays, you know, whether it be sneakers, watches. So I think that that could be a, a very interesting area if you're sort of a specialist in, in one of those spheres. Uh, yeah. But yeah, this whiskey boss, as I've sort of mentioned, I don't have a huge amount of knowledge and it's sort of a family heirloom, I guess. So yeah, I just keep that safe and uh, hopefully it will continue to do well over the next few years. Very good. And just uh, just one final thing. So um, if anyone uh, like want, had any questions about what you said or, or wants to get in contact with you, um, do you have any, any sort of contact information you'd want, to, you'd want to share for people to get in touch? Yeah, sure. I'm happy for you to um, drop my LinkedIn or uh, Instagram handle. I'm assuming that's on the um, sort of description in your video. You can maybe add that. But uh, yeah, very happy to provide advice. I've provided advice to my exes and various friends over the years. So, <laughs> Oh, wow. <laughs> that was uh, yeah. before she was my ex. But, uh, yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, I thought it was like a post-relationship thing. <laughs> no, no, no. It was uh, during, so she's done, yeah, she's probably done fairly well off my advice. But uh, yeah, no, very, very interesting sort of providing advice to people. So yeah, definitely uh, getting concerts if you sort of interested in anything I've said. Yeah, Adv- advice in inverted commas. N- neither of us are, are qualified financial advisors, but but we do, we do love it. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, Dan, uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for, for taking the time to, to talk about your own investing experiences. It's been, it's been really cool, especially on the, um, on the real estate investment trusts. Um, that's certainly an area that I'll look to get exposure to uh, later on as, as my portfolio increases in size. Um, thanks very much for, for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Will. Uh, pleasure to have me. And, uh, yeah, hope to speak soon. Yeah. All right, Dan. Thanks very much. Yeah. Cheers. Bye. Bye-bye.